Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush from Room Now. I'm here with Dr. Alvin Wells. Um, this past weekend, Alvin gave a fabulous telemedicine, short, unbelievably short, uh, but a, a really helpful talk on telemedicine in a TED format. Uh, and this generated a lot of questions about telemedicine, which is very important uh, in this time. So we asked Alvin to come on so I could ask him a few more questions. Uh, this, is, this piece is meant to be supplementary to his TED Talk, which will be on Room now uh, for everyone to view. Just check the website uh, and you can watch the video. Alvin, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Jack. Good to see you. All right. So let's get into it. Um, you know, everything's changed with the, this new pandemic and um, not seeing patients live in the clinic. Uh, so normally I'd be asking you, who's the ideal patient <laughs> that you'd want to do telemedicine? Right now, it seems like everyone is the ideal patient, but uh, who is the ideal patient? And then tell me how the, um, the switch over to seeing only patients remotely has changed your practice. Yeah, Jack, you know, I usually can imagine um, this week I've had more phone calls and emails and texts from all of our colleagues trying to see how they can get up and running. Uh, we've been doing telemedicine for over four years. And I think so some of the things which is exciting this week is that the rules have changed. Um, my group as others, we've actually have Tuesday of this week, we've closed the clinic. So we only see an emergency patients. I mean, that means I had a guy who came with a gout flare or somebody who I think had a uveitis flare. Those are ones that were seen physically in, in the clinic and they're screened before coming in. You asked a question, who is an ideal patient to see for a, telemed a telemedicine visit? And you're right, I think it's all the patients. Let me take a step back. So before the pandemic, I would say, hey, um, we could do that to screen um, new patient referrals. So I have a lot of my colleagues, they'll take the time to go through these notes and say, yes, 10, 20, 15 minutes to review notes and say, I don't want to see the patient. And you're not getting reimbursed for that. So now you can have, let's say, if somebody who's had back pain for seven years, they have a positive ANA, they want to be seen by you. So don't say no to that patient. You say, hey, let's do a, a telemedicine visit for 15 minutes and I can screen. You can ask the appropriate questions. And indeed, this might be somebody you don't need to see in the practice. On the other hand, taking about our most stable patient in the practice, the rheumatoid patients, they're coming in, they're doing fine. They just need to eat okay to keep their methotrexate, to keep their biologic. Those are my quickest and my easiest patients. And then of course, we have other patients that are more of the challenging ones. Uh, those patients with the osteoarthritis nodules, they want those to go away. Uh, the fibromyalgia patient who wants their life to be completely healed. And I think the nice thing about those patients when a telemedicine visit is that it limits their, their, their dis length of discussion. Those patients can go on for 30 or 40 minutes. And on a telemedicine visit, they're forced to actually uh, get it into 15 minutes or for 30 minutes. And actually, deep what I tell them, I say, hey, you write down the two things you want to talk about before your visit. So when they connect, we have three minutes to go through the niceties. I take about five minutes to do a virtual exam, and we can talk some about that three and a half minutes to do a summary and then three and a half minutes to finish up my notes. So in 15 minutes, you can get a good feel for the things along those lines. So to answer the question, all patients I think now are candidates and in some I think it'll be more suitable than others. So um, a lot of people are interested in this. How are they going to get up to speed um, quickly? You know, I, I, of course they could. We talked uh, at the meeting about maybe partnering with, a, with another company and whatnot, but that's going to take a, a few months to get going. Um, what can you advise people now about how to get up to speed on doing either a telemedicine or even a telephone consult uh, with their patients? So yeah, so first of all, we had a, a conference call on Wednesday night with Seema Verma, uh, the director of CMS, and talked about now you could definitely do telephone calls. Telephone calls are reimbursed by CMS, meaning Medicare. And then she also said something interesting too, said that now that your practice is the U.S., that they've waived the, um, the requirements for having a state license. So for example, I'm here in Illinois, 
I can do a telemedicine visit and code for that with Medicare for a patient from California or from Texas. So my practice now is the US. And why is that done? Uh, give an example yesterday. So since we're not seeing patients, our group has got all the doctors together say, hey, can you fill some of these calls? So 1,850 calls uh, in the line for people who had questions about the COVID-19. And again, so this one young guy I talked to yesterday, 16-year-old with a temperature of 100.3. He hadn't been outside for a week. I asked a couple of questions, talked to his mom. He's had strep throat in the past. I said, this sounds like strep. You need to go to urgent care for a strep swab. On the other hand, I talked to a young lady, 30-year-old teacher. She's been doing homeschooling for the last week. She had some nasal congestions, a little stuffiness, and a temperature of 99.0. I said, that's nothing to worry about. Call if you get a fever. So you can see, you can stratify those people. Some, you can take care of them, alleviate their concerns over the phone. Others, you say, hey, you need to go to another facility like that patient with the strep throat. So there's some free platforms that are out there. There's one now everybody's been talked about called doxy.me, D-O-X-Y.me. You can sign up for that today, Jack. You can go on their line, you can do that. They have a platform that a patient can put their information in and it gives you the kind of uh, a paradigm of what to kind of follow with your patients. Um, that is free. They do have an upgrade for that where you can actually pay a fee. I think it's roughly $30 per month and that allows you to do more stuff. So take a look at that, you can log on now. And there are other paid platforms out there. I've mentioned in the TED Talk, uh, there's one called HealthTap, H-E-A-L-T-H-T-A-P, and another one called American Well or Amwell. Those, you pay a fee uh, to the company, but they give you the whole platform. You don't need to recreate the wheel. Now, what we've done in this with my group as of May of last year, we have Epic now, and we use Zoom as a connection between me and the patient, but everything flows through Epic. So we have a, a template for a video visit and everything is there. So whether you're doing a paid platform that's already ready to go, you can sign up and get that information. You can get going today. Uh, whether you have a platform with your group using Zoom like we have with Epic or doing simple telephone calls. Um, there are telephone codes and everything are out there. You can look up those. Uh, they are online and available. But I think now it really is open uh, for all of us to be able to help these patients alleviate their concerns, but also to keep our patients on our diseases and our drugs, keep them um, and stable and making sure there's no issues as we follow them. So you mentioned that um, this is all reimbursable now. How do you get your visits to be a level four visit or, or, or can you not do that? Yes, you can, Jack. And so for most of my patients, so I give an idea. So January of this year, most of the insurance companies like Aetna, Humana, they start reimbursing for telemedicine visits. And that essentially means here that the patient doesn't get a cash payment a fee like we do with these other platforms where they have to pay a fee before they're seen they actually log in with me and I send the bill to the insurance companies. And most of those are level three or level four. So think about this, and this is what many doctors don't do. I'm connecting with you. So one part of my physical exam is a psychiatric exam. You're alert, you're oriented times three. I mean, you know where you are, you know the president's not Ronald Reagan. So you know all those different things. That's a psychiatric exam. And then I say, hey, open your mouth. You have any sores in your mouth looking for stomatitis. I say, and show me your joints. Can you make a fist? We do like the sweets, so we do a prayer pose lifting his shoulders up, all those things that get me to the musculoskeletal. I review labs, and if I prescribe like some ambience to sleep, or if I get flexural for muscle relaxation, that's a level four. So we document all those different things. I say a template I have, I say, hey, our virtual exam was performed, including uh, physical exam to the oral mucosa, looking at joints and looking at the skin and all those different things. Now, you might have a patient who calls in for an acute visit. Hey, I'm on one of my biologic drugs, and I got a rash where I put that needle in, Tell, I need to see, tell me what that is. Could it be cellulitis? Could it be shingles? Could it be injection site reaction? So the patient puts the camera over the part of their chest, the leg, or where they have the area, and that helps you do. So that can be like a level two or level three visit. 
So you see how, how you can do that and all based on the depth. But I tell my, my colleagues, don't forget the psychiatric exam, scan uh, your joints and the oral mucosa, and that gets you to a level three, level four right there. Very good. What do you do about patients who um, don't have a webcam and don't have access? Can they go somewhere? Can someone help them do it? What do you, what do you advise? So that's the challenging part that we talked about. And I think it's really kind of telling, you know, Obama said, you know, it's easier for a kid in Chicago to get a, a gun than it is to get a computer. And one of the things we've learned this week with the kids not being in school, that unfortunately, Jack, a lot of the kids don't have um, uh, internet coverage at home. So Comcast and others now trying to find a way they can provide care for those patients, giving um, people to give them internet coverage at home. I'm trying to work on a project. Think about this with the local libraries. So now the librarians have nothing to do anymore. So think about a patient could go in and say, I need to go to one of those study cubicles, get me online, and then they can connect with me in a private study room. So we're trying to work with the local libraries on that. So again, as you can know, there's all kind of hiccups and things about that. And this is why I think, you know, the CMS said this, this week that you can do the telephone visits and you can go from there. Very good. Um, do you need to make any adjustments to the front end? Uh, I know you're using Epic. Patients can use a portal to communicate. Um, do you incorporate that into your visit uh, questionnaires or the portal use prior to the visit? So yeah, so when patients have a portal, as you know, they have access to everything. Now it's something called open chart that everything you record and put into the notes uh, the patient has access to. And there's a question on that too, would you be interested in a virtual visit? And so they can sign up and have all that stuff there. And then when I have my schedule in the morning, it's putting up how many people, I, how many injections I'm doing, new patients follow up, and how many virtual visits I have. And we've been doing more new virtual visits now, 15 minutes or 30 minutes to screen them, ask their questions. And then the nice thing, Jack, I can order my labs, I can order my x-rays, and then another week we can get back on the line and say, hey, good news, you don't have lupus, I'm gonna send your doctor some recommendations, you can go from there. So again, you see how easy it can be done. And many people, like I said, now they're wasting the time to go through all these ruckets where you can't bill for your time just to review some. I can do that while I'm on the phone with them, you get to reimburse. And I think that's the reality with particularly with this pandemic. So lastly, um, malpractice would be on everyone's mind. I know yes. that before it was, I was told that in Texas, I could see only people within Texas. Otherwise I'd need a license outside of Texas. You alluded to this issue at the top of the talk. Tell me how you've handled malpractice and what the recent revision might be. So a couple of things. So with the platform HealthTap, um, the, pay, the patient pays $1 and that covers your $3 million, $1 million policy. Okay. And they say you can actually do stuff across the state lines, which is a new for me. And I'm trying to learn out, but as of just Wednesday, like I said, I can see a patient from California for Texas. Does that mean I'm covered by my Illinois and Wisconsin malpractice policy? Or are the other issues off? So I don't know about those because this is a moving target right now. So um, uh, the other paradigm before now was say, hey, I need to have a license in all those different states and maybe have some coverage in all those different states. So um, that's a little bit of issue that's up in the air. So for right now with HealthTap, patient pays a fee, you're covered. Uh, and but right now I'll tell people still stay within your guidelines of your current practice provider and then reach out to them. They might have a clause in there and some are gonna to have to tweak the clauses because this is a new era now. But talk about telemedicine and some of those things are not in the standard policies that most insurance carriers have put out there. So you think CMS is going to allow us to see people across the line for Medicare only patients? 
So no, that they'll be for Medicare and for Medicaid, of course. But I think what's going to happen that traditional insurance is going to follow suit. So once CMS kind of sets that standard, that threshold, then other insurance companies say, "Yeah, we're going to do the same thing." I got two thousand patients who have a question: Do they need to be screened for COVID? Because you know, to get the swab, you need to have a recommendation from a doctor. They just can't go to one of these drive-throughs and get swab. They got to be seen. They got to be filled it by a doctor. I have to then order that test. They get a number, and then they go to the doctors to get the swab and everything done. So whether you're talking about COVID-19, somebody who thinks they might have lupus, somebody who wants to be on a different type of drug or want a second opinion, all of those things are going to change how we're practicing medicine in 2020 and, and moving forward. Alvin, this is uh, always amazing. You are a fountain of knowledge on this topic <laughs> and others. Um, thank you so much for this time, these questions. I'll encourage everyone to watch your video on Room Now Live and Room Now. Thanks, Alvin. Right. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush with Room Now. I'm here with Alvin Wells. Uh, again, Alvin, we need you to help us uh, get through these difficult times and uh, dealing with patients remotely. So um, how, how are you handling the um, introduction of remote visits with your patients? Um, what do you, how do you get them to consent to do it? Uh, do you do a formal consent? So that's a good question, Jack. And I think, you know, starting off with, you know, as simple as doing telephone calls. And uh, we do first have to document the patient, get their document, the identity that it is the one that we're talking to. Uh, we ask them birthdays. Um, I don't usually ask their social security numbers, but all those things need to be documented. And also my major practice in Wisconsin, I need to know what state they're calling from. And as I mentioned last week, we've been filling calls mainly from Illinois and from Wisconsin. So I have to document what state uh, that I'm actually conversing with that patient on. And as you know, the rules now open, we can practice in all the different states to document, hey, I got a call from someone from Texas. This is what they did and these are what we discussed. And we can talk about the documentation and the coding as we go through this. Okay, so you do get a consent, a verbal consent, and you document that in your note. Um, Correct. What, what kind of information are you collecting on your patients? Do you have a template that you're working off of? Or what are your three or four main objectives and what data you document? Yeah, so first of all, and again, this is why I think people start off with everybody's wondering last week, hey, do I need to rush out and get these programs? You can start first with simple as doing a telephone call. Now, to document a telephone call, it has to be between me and a patient, not my nurse, uh, nurse or my medical assistant. Now, my nurse practitioner, my PA can actually fill those calls, and we can actually bill for that. I just made some cheats here, the things I want to talk about that should be documented on the telephone call. What medical issue was discussed? Did they have rheumatoid arthritis? Is a PMR flare? Uh, what pertinent findings? Hey, I'm having a headache. Hey, I'm feel short of breath. Hey, my joints are swollen. Assessment and diagnosis. So based on what they've told me, yes, this could be a gout flare. This could be PMR. You talk about all those different things. Any medications or adjustments that were refills were made? Any labs that were ordered? And then what your follow-up recommendations would be? And again, the guidelines had been before this uh, week is that, hey, that uh, I do a telephone call or a virtual visit, it could not result in an office visit within seven, uh, within 24 hours. So if I have somebody in a day, it's a gout flare, here's a medrol dose pack, call me back in six days if you're not better or come in for a cortisone injection. So to recap, medical issues documented, discussed, pertinent findings, the assessment or diagnosis, any medications, labs ordered, and what your follow-up recommendations would be. And then the codes are for, again, for a healthcare provider, a physician, physician assistant, or nurse practitioner, the codes are 99441, 442, and 443. For now, five those, to 10 those, minutes. 
Are those right. for telephone or television? Tele so those are those are for the telephone codes, okay? And right. again, because many people say, hey, I don't have, I'm not up and running. It's going to take me time to get the patient signed up on their end. I'm signed up, but the patient's not ready to go. I say, well, guys, you can still do this by the telephone. Pick up the phone call, pick up telephone, and have a conversation with that patient. And that's what those codes are, 99441, 442, and 443. Okay. What about an e, there's an e-visit code and a telehealth or televideo uh, code? Are they different? So, yes, they are a little bit different, but here's the rule now, Jack. So we've actually even stopped using those. Now we'll use like the regular follow-up visit codes, or 99213214215 for a reg what did you would document and bill for your regular visit. And most of my electronic visits now are level three, and maybe in some cases are level four. You can still do those e-visits, those other e-codes, there's some G-codes that are out there, but right now they're reimbursing the, for those regular, like your regular office visit codes. So you don't make, need to make things more complicated by, uh, by putting in those other codes, putting in modifiers and all those things. We don't even do that anymore. Uh, and it definitely, okay. like I said, for the telephone calls, you just document that and you can go. Uh, one point I need to make too, Jack, because remember some patients with Medicare and Medicaid, they have a copay that they make. Now CMS has waived those, those, those uh, copays. So, hey, the patient does have a $10 copay or whatever to do a telephone call. That's all been waived. You still can charge for your codes and get reimbursed for that. Yeah, we just uh, put up uh, a secondary tweet about this. The Office of the Inspector General came out and said they're not going to pursue any, any issues regarding collection of copays and whatnot Correct. for federally funded programs like Medicare and Medicaid. Correct. Um, so the last issue is how are you connecting remotely? There's telephone versus video. You're wired for video. Where would telephone make more sense, though? Yeah, so the telephone's going to make more sense. And again, it's, it's really sad. In the U.S., we still have some people who are not computer literate, don't feel comfortable with the smartphone or with, their, uh, with the computer, and don't even have internet access at home. That's the number one place that I'm finding that, we are, uh, that we're using the telephone. And again, what they do, while I'm on the, in, in the room in my office, then my staff are connecting. They actually queuing these calls for me. Say, hey, Dr. Wells, at 1 o'clock, Mrs. Smith, 115 is going to miss this Jones. And they're having those calls in the queue for me. I hang up on one phone, and I pick up on and I hit the button on another one. They're holding on. They, they, my MA is now. They're doing my verification. They say, hey, uh, this is Mrs. Smith. She's got gout. She here the medications. Everything's up to date. And boom, I pick up the line. I go to the next one. So I have my team to kind of queue those calls for me, and I can go really pretty quickly rapid through those. I have Epic on there and I click on her name and then go to the next one from there. So having your team working with you, your medical assistants and your nurses to kind of help fill those calls, see what the issues are first, and then you can kind of go through those pretty quickly. Okay. And then there are patients uh, visits that you can do by video. Um, if you're not wired with an EHR setup that will do that, there are obviously other formats to connect face-to-face -face with patients. Uh, I'm gonna just mention a few of them here. Uh, everyone knows about FaceTime, but it has to be Apple to Apple. If you don't have uh, one Apple phone, then you could use the Google application Duo, uh, which you can download and you can have both on an Apple phone and an Android. Um, you can also use WhatsApp for televideo, televideo conferencing. And then there's another application called Doxy.me, which is a service, but pretty easy to sign on to, and you can use that. Again, that's you just need a phone or uh, a camera on either end. Do you have any other tips or, or tricks here? Yes, as I've been doing all those stuff, a lot of things come with this new one out called Video, V-I-D-Y-O, Video, that's another one. They have a platform that you can use. They can, can talk to some med electronic medical records. And a nice thing about that, some of the universities are using those across the board. It can actually talk to Epic and talk to others as well. And as I mentioned before, the doxy, D-O-X-Y dot me, 
that's a free service. But if you want to have more utility of what that, be able to do more things, you can actually pay, I think, rough like a $30 per month charge that allows you to get more access and do more things. But those platforms require that the patient has something on their end. They need, to be, they need to be enrolled in that. They need to put their diagnoses. They need to put in, well, you put the diagnosis, but they need to put their medications, their allergies, all those different things. So they need to create a health record on that, and that takes a little bit of time. So those, you can get rolling while you're doing your telephone calls, and I think you're really right to mention things like WhatsApp and doing a FaceTime, all those things, and just to document that you're there. And that's the most important thing. So be able to collect and the bill for these things, you have to show there was documentation and how long you were on the connection with that patient. Was it five minutes or 10 minutes? And what proceeded? Yeah, we use FaceTime to connect at 10. I finished up the call at 10, 15. And this is what we talked about. And you put that in at the beginning of your note. Okay. So Alan, documentation is the key. You're our fountain of knowledge as usual. Thanks so much for this input. We will connect with you soon for more good Alvin tips. Take care. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to stop that. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with RoomNow.com. We have on the line two experts in the field of te telemedicine. Dan Albert from the Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire and uh, Alvin Wells from the Rheumatology and Immunotherapy Center in Franklin, Wisconsin. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hi, Jack. Hi, Jack. Okay. so. Uh, both of you have been have been using uh, telemedicine for quite a while. Alvin in practice, private practice, and Dan in an academic center at uh, at Dartmouth. Um, I'd like to start by uh, Dan telling us how you're using um, uh, telemedicine in your practice, especially this week. So, um, Jack, it's been a very eventful week. Um, as you can see, I'm home, and I'm home because my fellow is being tested for COVID-19, whom I've rounded with for the last two weeks, and I've been sent home uh, to do all of my encounters remotely. And uh, this is not a uh, new thing for me, but um, doing it exclusively from home is quite new. Um, there's been a lot of changes with the COVID-19 uh, epidemic, and most of them, in my mind, have been for the good. You know, they have relaxed a lot of the restrictions. You no longer have to uh, have the patient at an academic or a, a clinic uh, setting. They can be at home. Uh, there's no restriction on uh, the way in which you um, in, encounter the patient. In other words, HIPAA. Real, uh, regulations have been relaxed. Um, they've uh, changed some of the billing so that it's a little bit more transparent. And uh, by and large, it's been quite a bit um, easier to do this, even if you're um, stuck in quarantine, as I, I think I'm going to be. Um, and, uh, you know, the only restrictions that uh, remain are um, the state restrictions where you have to be licensed in the state that the patient is at. Um, okay. And that hasn't changed at all. Other than that, um, there's a little bit different uh, format and epic for doing these uh, virtual um, encounters, but it's not a huge deal. I think that by and large, uh, most of the changes have been quite, uh, quite um, uh, in line with what we had hoped uh, telemedicine would uh, achieve in the future. So I think if there's a silver lining to the to this particular one for telemedicine, it's definitely a plus. Alvin, how are you using it and what's changed uh, as far as your practice 
of telemedicine. I think Dan is right on some things. So I think you take a step back as a private physician. My goal was, hey, how can I increase revenue? Uh, and I've evolved over the years. We've been doing about five or six years now, going from platforms like HealthTap and American Well and Teladoc into now we use a platform with Epic where Zoom is our connection with the patient. The one big change this week has been the use of telephones. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of uh, older Americans and even some of the uh, patients of, you know, a lower socioeconomic status don't have a computer. They don't have internet access, but a telephone call has been really, really been good to kind of fill those. And I can't tell you how many telephone calls we've had and the whole gamut of questions that we all have had. Uh, I think and Dan is absolutely right that they've changed the rules now that we can actually bill and code for telephone calls. Uh, CMS has waived the, um, the co-pays and deductible for all televisits. And again, in the past where it had to be at one facility, like a nursing home to a clinic or a hospital to a clinic, now they can be doing it at home, which is very, very, very nice, uh, which makes it really good. Dan, I had a question for you. We've been struggling with some of our Medicaid patients. How do they get access? Like I said, if they don't have a, um, a internet access at home, do you guys have a, a, a booth, a cubicle they can go to to kind of log on somewhere outside the university? I mean, that's what we're struggling with. How do we get access for all of our patients? Yeah, I think that is a generic, uh, difficult um, situation. We want to protect the providers and the patients from getting uh, infected. And so we have to sort of keep them separate and, uh, and isolated, but many patients don't have access to the sophisticated um, uh, computer access that we require. And, and uh, as you've mentioned, some of these um, programs are quite difficult to, to, um, to manage. So um, in general, we've been reverting to telephone encounters. You know, I don't think that there's an easy way around that. You can't send them to the library. The library has the computer facilities, but they're closed. They're closed, um, right. And, 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 and that goes for almost every place that has, uh, you know, public access. So, you know, I think we have to live with telephone calls. I agree. So Alvin, you mentioned that you're getting a lot of calls i'm sure dan is too what are the two most common questions that both of you are getting let's start with alvin two yeah, most common questions and what's your response yeah the number one thing is of course of all the biologic drugs and even methotrexate and the scenario goes i just answered one say hey my husband is a police officer and he might have been exposed by someone he arrested and i'm on one of my these medications do i need to hold my uh, my injections or my pills no symptoms, no issues at all, no fever or anything, even from, the, from the, the patient or from the police officer, but it still triggers a call. And that's been the number one I've seen. And so, hey, I think I, as someone in my family, has been exposed to whomever, and what do I do with, with any of my 15 medication that we prescribe in rheumatology? That's been my number one thing. And I tell them, hey, you want to hold your medication because when the disease is active, the immune system is preoccupied causing havoc. Uh, you're less likely to fight an infection. So I think that's where we need more guidance from ACR and others so to get the message out, you know, globally. Dan, what's the most common question you're getting? I, I agree. That's the most common question is whether I should continue my medications. They ask for uh, very, sometimes very sophisticated questions. Should I be taking ibuprofen? Right. Um, should I should I add hydroxychloroquine to my regimen? Uh, you know, and variety of other um, nuance uh, issues. But by and large, we've given them the same answer. If you're not sick, and the person that you think has has uh, has exposure is not sick, then continue their your uh, biologics. So I would uh, refer our um, room now audience to. Uh, one a tweet that I put out today from the American Academy of Dermatology 
uh, the ACR is coming out with its information any day now. The AAD came up with its guidance for patients and they say, do not stop your biologics unless of course the bottom line was, if you are infected, yes, stop your biologics and contact your rheumatologist. Uh, and then for patients, I did a video, I called it a PSA that can be found on Facebook or on Twitter or on our website. It's called um, uh, Managing Your Arthritis Medications. And it's like a six minute video. It's sort of me to a patient about what to do about your medicines, including uh, non-steroidals, Tylenol, biologics, and that, all that sort of thing. Uh, it's a good resource uh, to refer people to, because again, we're getting these questions over and over again. Um, Dan, do you have a question for Alvin? Yeah. Uh, Alvin, you use Zoom for your um, video portion of yours, and you've been able to integrate it into uh, Epic. That's, that's uh, an interesting, uh, I think we use video, V-I-D-Y-O, and right. the interface is a little bit cumbersome, and so Zoom might be a better um, option for us. Did you, did you come upon that um, just by yourself, or was that a recommendation? So, uh, so no, one of the things we did, so learning, I, I always tell people if they want to dabble in telemedicine, they, they should merely become a member of the American Telemedicine Association. So after going for a couple of meetings, you know, everybody's you know, pitching their platform. And then Zoom came out. Of course, I got the t-shirt that says Zoom on it. But when we looked at that, we really wanted something to integrate with, uh, with, the, with the electronic medical record. So in the past, when I had CERN and other ones, I would do like uh, Health Tap or American Well. And I would have to print that visit out and then have one of my staff would have to scan that into the electronic records. So now I have Zoom on one side of my computer. I have Epic over here. I have my microphone and I'm talking and dictating as I go along, making sure the patient understands what we're saying. So it's really kind of seamless. Uh, we've created a template. And if you have you know, care everywhere, you can reach out for those. We have a, vi a virtual visit template that we've created. And we're trying to tweak that with the new guidelines. But yeah, it's very, very, in my mind, kind of mm -hmm. seamless. I think the challenge, like you said, is not all of our colleagues are going to have Epic or have the Zoom that's available. So some of these options that are ready to go out of the box, things like, you know, doxy.me or some other ones, like even American Well, that patient uh, physicians can use right off the bat. So both of you uh, who been, have been doing this for a while, every one of us or uh, the rest of us are struggling to catch up right now. And both of you have great lectures on the topic of telemedicine, tele telerheumatology. And you're really good at pitching the idea that this is the, maybe the future. This is important. Um, this works because it's convenient. It's time efficient. It's cost efficient. And you maintain privacy. But there are downsides to this. And I want you to discuss what the downside is of uh, telemedicine. Besides the electronics, the fact that most older, white-haired, <laughs> almost retiring rheumatologists, no haired rheumatologists, almost retiring are not good at electronics. Um, and maybe this doesn't apply to all patients. What is the downside of, of telehealth? Dan, you want to start with that? Go ahead, Dan. Yeah. Well, I think, the, I think the downside for me is the inability to examine them carefully. Um, I think that's been everyone's concern. And if you don't examine the patient physically uh, in any detail, then there's an anxiety level on the provider side that, that you're missing something. And that uh, is, you know, um, a portion of the patients where the um, exam is a crucial factor. It may be, I mean, in our studies, it was more like 20%. It wasn't huge, but it was enough to, that, to say, 
I'm not comfortable, you need to come in. And um, that's, I think, the biggest limitation from my standpoint. Alvin. So my thing is, 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 is actually the patients. You know, we take a step back. Even when we have introduced a patient, hey, I have a nurse practitioner, I have a physician assistant, they're just as good as me. We still sometimes get some pushback from the patients. And I'm really surprised. It's not always my older patients. They love the time, 30 minutes with the PA. But some of my younger patients get the pushback. So my older patients are happy. They can sit there on the phone. They can talk and they can go on and on. And they love that kind of time. But I think it's one of getting buy-in from the patient side standpoint. Um, I am. I do think the good thing out of this is it's going to change how we practice in medicine in the future, that we will see this be a part of our medical care delivery system. I wish we get to the point that we did, that's so interesting, last year at ACR, the doctors in groups in Germany, that the doctor now can prescribe these apps. They, have a, they can prescribe the watch that's covered by the German insurance. They have an app that leaks into the clinic, and they can monitor the blood pressure and all those different things. So the tools are there. We just need to get sophisticated to see who can cover those things and making sure that across the country that the internet access should not be an option. It'd be something that's kind of standard. Because uh, again, you talk about medicine, but even in our area, Chicago and Milwaukee, there are kids who can't do the homeschool because they don't have the internet. So Comcast and others are trying to come up with ways to cover some of these inner cities where they don't have all the, the, the virtual access. So but I think the biggest thing is the patient, getting a buy-in from them, and then eventually getting more and more uh, acceptance by the standard insurance companies as well. Let's end with the issue of new patients via telemedicine. You know, follow-ups are easier. You know the patient, you know their stories, their exam might change, you know what to maybe expect there, but a new patient, you don't know. They come with, you know, it has, it's vasculitis, it's lupus, it's everything that it probably isn't. Um, how do you handle telemedicine in new patients, Alvin? So first of all, Jack, that's how I love it the most, because I can tell you, I roughly see nine new patients a day, so my three, two PAC three each, and I see three, but I see, I, I stay staff all the patients with me. Um, but I, I'm just overwhelmed by the number of patients I see that they really should not be in my clinic. So the patient who's had back pain for seven years, somebody does an ANA on them, and say now that one to 80 ANA is lupus that caused you a back pain, you need to see Dr. Wells. And I get them in, we've got them on the schedule for 45 minutes, and it turns out in five minutes, I can say, you do not have lupus. That doesn't cause your back pain. So instead of wasting my time where I don't get paid for, I don't screen patients visit. I say I have to come in, but now I love it for those new patients. So the scenario is I order my blood work, I get my x-rays. If that set rate comes back at 80, the CRP comes back at 10. Uh, and then based on what they told me, I say, wow, you need to come in tomorrow for a physical visit. And I say, this is some issues that's going on. So I love it instead of screening, taking the time to screen people. I love it for the new patients because we all know that many people that are referred to us probably shouldn't be seen by rheumatology. Dan, what do you think? Um, so I have a very similar um, approach to it. If patients need to come down to our clinic, we pre-screen them and we reject about 90% uh, based on the same considerations that Alvin said. In telemedicine, I don't reject anybody. Um, so I see all of them by telemedicine and I do exactly what Alvin says. If they, if they, if they uh, look like they ha have an uh, inflammatory disease, if their labs are abnormal, I have them come down. So, so I think we have a very similar approach. It's just that we pre-screen our in, our in-clinic visits to the point where I'm worried that we're missing things, you know. Hmm. So I'd this rather could, do the telemedicine. Exactly. This, so this could e easily become an important part of the rheumatology uh, evaluation model. Gentlemen, thank you very much for this insight um, and making us smarter in this time of COVID. Um, hopefully we'll continue the discussion.
Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Jack. Thanks, Alvin. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. Take care now.